I want to set this up. It's the, um, it's the early 1990s. I'm maybe eight, nine, ten years old. I know, kind of cute. Um, I'm living at home, of course, right? With my mom and dad and my younger sister, Taya. My youngest sister, Marika, is not yet born yet. And we have, phys- uh, we have family visiting us uh, from Canada. FYI, I was born in Canada, uh, just outside of Toronto. A couple of times we would go there to visit family. And in these visits, I realized that we have different foods in America and in Canada. They're, they're the same. They're not, or they're, they're not the same. They're similar. They're not the same. That's a distinction Kyler helped me grasp last night, right? Similar, but not the same. See, in America, we... <laughs> huh? Oh, well, that's all right. Well, uh, in the U.S., we eat M&M's. Uh, in Canada, they eat Smarties. In the United States, our bacon comes in, like, long, lean strips. I wouldn't say lean, but long strips. In Canada, they're round and fat. Here in America, we run on Dunkin'. There, they have Tim Hortons. Kind of get the picture. Well, back stateside, you know, family, my aunt... Uh, Debbie, my Uncle Jerome, they're visiting us at our home in Virginia. And the sun rises. It's a new morning. Everybody congregates in the kitchen. The adults maybe pour themselves some coffee. And my aunt, she wants something to eat. She wants a bowl of cereal. So she starts rifling through some cabinets, looking for where our cereal is stored. And she finds this bright red box. She's like, mm, this looks good. It's a box of bugles. You know the, what bugles are? They're like the cone-shaped chips that you kind of put on your fingers and you kind of have claws. Well, my aunt pours herself a nice big bowl of bugles. She grabs some milk, and she pours it all over the bugles. And then she grabs a spoon, and she slides up to the table, and she takes her first big bite. And it is milky, and it is mushy, and it is really, really salty. And she squishes up her face and she says, this is the worst cereal I have ever had. (laughs) I've never forgotten it. It makes me laugh to this day. And I think it hits upon a pretty profound truth. All of us are hungry. We're all looking for something that will satiate our hunger, for something that will satisfy. But so often we reach for things that do not work. We fill our metaphorical bowl with bugles. The story from the Gospel of Luke invites us to consider where our true satisfaction lies. I'm going to project it up here. You can follow along in a Bible app or those free Bibles on the table are our gift to you. But this is Luke 9 to 10, 9 verses 10 to 17. Now on the return, the apostles told him, that's Jesus, they told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, 
have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is God's word, it's not my own. I'm going to pray that you help us to understand it. Father, thanks for bringing us together uh, on a Wednesday night. Thanks for feeding us food. And thanks for feeding us with your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, you would nourish us with both. Um, Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The resurrection of Jesus is one, and the feeding of 5,000 is the other. Now, what is so special about this story that all four Gospel writers felt the need to include it in their Gospel narrative? Well, first, this is a story that is ultimately about hungry, read, empty people being fed to the full. That's what this story is all about. It's about hungry people, empty people, being fed to the full. If you want, uh, you can project that back up there. Every one of us gets hungry. All of our tummies grumble. We all experience hunger pains. But I want you to consider for a moment that God made you this way. You need air to breathe. You need water to drink. You need food to eat. You need all of these to give you life. Without these, you will die. Now consider God. He doesn't need any of these things. He doesn't need something outside of himself to give him life. He is life. He doesn't need it. He gives it away. But you and me, we are creatures. We are creatures made in his image, no doubt, but we are creatures just the same. Just like a bird and a rat and a dog and a cat, there are things beyond us that we need to survive. And this isn't a deficiency on our part. We are this by God's design. He made us this way. He made us hungry. And because we are physical creatures, we need physical food. But because we are also spiritual beings as well, creatures made in the image of God, we have spiritual needs in addition to those physical needs. It's not enough to simply feed our faces. We need to feed our souls as well. We need love and hope and meaning and purpose and relationships. Without these, life is no life at all. And that is why Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, man shall not live by bread alone. You're not meant to. We are made in God's image after all. We need to be in relationship with him. We need him to speak. We need him to be a living and active presence in our lives. Our lives simply don't work right apart from him. The 4th century theologian and the African church father, St. Augustine, famously declared, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Hear what he's saying. He's saying in effect that all of us have a God-sized hole in our hearts. Right? Something only he can fill. We all have a God-sized pit in our gut. Right? Something that only he can satisfy. And yet, we try very hard to fill that God-sized hole in our heart with just about anything else and everything else that we can find. We do this with material things. A new computer, or a new iPhone, or a new car. All of those sorts of things that advertisers tell us that we need to be happy. We get them, we get excited, and it happens to me too. I just got this new computer right over there. And I tell you, the folks at Apple are geniuses, not just for like what's in the box, but how they design the box. Because if you've ever gotten anything from Apple, there's a real moment of adrenaline and, dare I say, joy when you sort of take that off and there's this shiny thing just waiting for you and you turn it on and it says, hello. And you're like, hi, I've been waiting for you. It's pretty, it's pretty magical. There's a high, but we come off of it, right? The novelty wears off. It's happened already, right? This thing becomes what it always has been. It's just a computer. This is just an iPhone. Right? It's just a thing. The hole is still there. Well, maybe we try to fill that hole with something else, like clothes or fashion. We figure what we really need to be happy is a new sweater or a new RUF t-shirt or sweatshirt, a new pair of pants. Then we'll feel better. We'll feel good and fresh at first. But it doesn't take long. Maybe three or four wears before our fashion feels tired And that feel-good feeling fades, feels worn out. The hole is still there. We try to to fill our hearts, that hole in our hearts, with vacation. We go to the beach, go to the mountains, we go on a cruise. And then we realize that nothing has actually changed. I'm still the same old person. I'm just here on a beach, or on a mountain, or on a boat. Our hunger goes with us. The hole is still there. Maybe you look to drugs and alcohol, right, to satisfy that longing, to fill that hole. You drink lots of beer. You smoke lots of pot. Maybe you even blow some cocaine. But it doesn't take long for you to sober up and for that high to come down. And sure enough, you are right back where you started, only worse. Now you feel withdrawal, and it's going to take an increasing amount of drugs to chase that ever-fleeting feeling. The hole is still there. We try to fill that hole with our grades or with our performance. We say to ourselves, I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied if I can finally get straight A's, or if I can make it onto the dean's list, or if I can get that internship, or if I can get that promotion. But we climb to the tops of these mountains and we look around and all we see are more mountains, are more mountains to climb. And we realize the rat race never stops. The hole is still there. We try to fill that hole with our friends. We latch on to people. We try to fill that hole with their approval. We try to fill that hole with human love. We spill our guts, we tell our secrets, we give ourselves away in sex. And yet, for all of that, 
There are still depths of our hearts that are yet to be plumbed, vast stretches of our lives that are unknown and misunderstood. And we still experience loneliness. The hole is still there. We try to fill that that hole in our heart by going home. We try to travel back in time or to go back to our people or to go back to that place. But when it comes to time, we can only go forwards, not backwards. People come and go. Places change. We discover that home is a feeling that is often elusive, that escapes us. The hole is still there. And finally, we try to fill that hole with beauty. We look for it outside, at the edge of a waterfall, or at the lip of a canyon, or on the shores of Lake Champlain. Or we try to look for it inside, at an art museum, or maybe even a movie theater. And yet, we cannot climb into the sunset. We cannot climb into that painting. We cannot step inside the film. The hole is still there. We have what Bruce Springsteen calls hungry hearts. We try to fill our hungry hearts with things of this world, but they cannot ultimately satisfy. Why? Well, because it's as C.S. Lewis says, it's because we mistake the created thing for the thing itself, right? The destination rather than a signpost, right? Pointing us towards the creator, towards our final destination. He writes, for they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. He writes in his essay, Mere Christianity, and I quote, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, and well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, and there's such thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire, and there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, he says. And what this 20th century Englishman is saying is the same thing that African theologian Augustine was saying 1,500 years before him. Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In the book of Isaiah, God calls out to us. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me, and come to me. Hear, 
that your soul may live. God is inviting us. He's calling out to us, saying, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Stop chasing things that will not ultimately satisfy you. And listen to me, God says, and hear, right? Hear that your soul may live. We have within us a God-sized hole on our hearts, something that only he can satisfy him, or something that only he can satisfy. And what we see in our passage tonight, we see Jesus in a desolate, barren place. He is speaking to a crowd of hungry people. He's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And then he feeds them full of bread and fish. And the passage concludes, and they all ate and they were satisfied. This story is about a God who comes to hungry people and he feeds them full. Feeds them with his word. Feeds them with good food. When Jesus saves us, He doesn't turn us into creatures who don't hunger anymore. Instead, when Jesus saves us, he satisfies our hunger. He doesn't take away the need. He satisfies it. He puts food in our bellies, and he puts God in our hearts. He does both of these. Food in our bellies, God in our hearts. And because he does both, because he does both of these, we can stop looking to physical things to satisfy our souls. And at the same time, we don't have to downplay our real need for clean water and clean air and good food. We don't need to be embarrassed about being creatures. Jesus certainly isn't. He intends to give us all things. And this brings me to our second and final thought for tonight. That is, how does Jesus feed us? We see that he does it, but how? How does he feed our spirit? How does he feed our bodies? Well, he feeds us with the gospel and he feeds us through people. He mediates his care to us through people. He feeds us the gospel and he feeds us through his people. That's the second and I guess third thing that we'll see. Jesus feeds our hearts. He feeds our souls with the gospel. Our passage says that when the crowds circled around Jesus, he welcomed them. And he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. You see that in verses 10 and 11. What is that, right, the kingdom of God? It's a phrase that we encounter quite a bit in the Gospels. What does that mean? Well, the Bible talks about the kingdoms of this earth. And to get a sense of what those are like, you just simply need to turn on your news and look around. You see a lot of injustice and dog-eat-dog and a lot of greed and war and crime. It's the kingdom of God. Of the earth. But the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is everything wrong right again. It's the way that life is supposed to be. It's the way that God wanted things to be from the very beginning. Indeed, the way they are in heaven right now. That's what the kingdom of God is and what it's like. And this, Jesus says, is what he has come to bring life as it was meant to be lived. The first words that we hear out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of Luke, is, or in the Gospel of Mark, is this. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Repent and believe in the Gospel. 
The time is fulfilled, right? The long wait is over. The ancient promises are coming true. The kingdom of God is here, and you're right before you. Repent, turn around, and believe the gospel. Believe this good news. See, Jesus announces the inbreaking of God's kingdom. It's coming, and indeed, it's here in seed form. Jesus says he brings it, and this is gospel. This is good news. Over the weekend, we had a fall retreat, and Russ, our guest speaker, talked a lot about the gospel, and he explained to us what this word gospel meant in its original context. It's a Greek word, euangelion, and it's, a, it's something that messengers would use right after a battle. Back in the day, a king would ride off into battle to fight his enemies uh, and the enemies of the people. Everybody would be on pins and needles waiting to hear the outcome of that battle. If the king lost, the messenger would come back telling everybody to fight for their lives. But if the king won, that messenger would come back declaring euangelion, declaring gospel, declaring good news. Friends, your king, right, the Lord Almighty, has fought for you and has won. You are safe and you are secure and you are at peace right now because of what he has accomplished for you on your behalf. That is the gospel that is preached and proclaimed to you. Your king has come for you. He's gone into battle for you. He has taken on flesh and the person of Jesus Christ and he lifts our standard and he charges into battle to wage war against yours and my enemies, sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus emerges from that battle victorious. He has conquered our enemies, each and every one. You have been set free from the penalty of your sins. Jesus bore all of the punishment that your sins deserve. He bore that in your place on the cross on that first Good Friday. That is why there is no more condemnation for you if you have put your faith and trust in him. There is no more wrath. It has been exhausted in Jesus. You have been set free from sin's penalty. You've also, be, you've also been set free from sin's power. Your sins no longer define you. You are no longer under Satan's thumb, but God has given you his spirit. Indeed, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave. I know it doesn't feel like you're entirely victorious in your fight against sin, but there's a a new sense of war now, a new sense of struggle, and that is a sign that God's spirit is alive in you. That is a sign that you are alive, not dead. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, you who are with him, who are on his team, you will too. Death has become for you not a dead end, but a door. A door that leads into the presence of God, where there are no more tears or causes for crying, but the kingdom of God forevermore. Y'all, this is good news. This is the best news. It's not good advice. It's not something that you need to do. It is something that has been done for you. You don't do good news. You receive good news. 
And the way that you receive this good news is by faith. You stop trying to prove yourself and stop trying to save yourself. And instead, you turn to Jesus and you rest in him. You receive what he has to offer. You stop trying to impress God with your trophies and your resumes. You let all of that crap go. And instead, you come to Jesus empty-handed and you receive what he has to offer. You hold on to him tightly. You are saved by grace, which is just to say you are saved by a gift. And you are saved by faith, which is merely the hands that reach out and receive that gift and say, thanks, I needed that. By grace, by faith, in Christ alone. The good news is a gift that you can receive. Our hearts are hungry for this good word. Your hearts are craving this. My heart is craving this. The Bible says that your heart is craving this too. This is the good news that will satisfy your soul. We do not generate it. It doesn't come from inside of us. Instead, it's a good news that comes from the outside in. We ingest it, we receive it, and we feed on it by faith. We feed on it as we hear God's word read and preached. We feed on it as we read the scriptures at home or better yet, with friends. We feed on it as we gather for fellowship and worship like we're doing right now or when we go to church on Sunday. We feed on it when we participate in the Lord's Supper, which this text in some ways prefigures. We feed on the gospel in prayer when we approach the throne room of grace in Jesus' name on the basis of what he has done for us. Y'all, Jesus feeds us spiritual food. He fills that God-sized hole in our heart, and he does so through himself and through the power of the gospel. This is the food that you crave. But that's not the only way that Jesus feeds us in this passage. Jesus meets our physical, material needs as well. And how, you ask? Well, look, he feeds us through the sharing and the caring of his people, which he blesses and which he multiplies. Jesus feeds our bellies through his people. As the day is winding down, the disciples tell Jesus to shoo the crowds away. They say it. Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions in verse 12. It's almost as if they're saying, okay, Jesus, you did your whole spiritual thing. Now let them fend for themselves. Jesus, his response is, no. You give them something to eat. See, For Jesus, it's not like I'm here just to do the spiritual part. He loves us body and soul, soul and body. He cares for our spiritual needs, but he cares for our physical, material needs as well. He says to the disciples, you give them something to eat. And the disciples protest. They say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. We don't have the resources, Jesus, to feed this many. And Jesus says... Okay, give me what you got. As if with your little, I can do a lot. Give me what you got with your little, I can do a lot. At the end of the day, that's what he proves. 
With the disciples' lunch, he feeds 5,000 men and maybe just as many women and children. They give Jesus what they've got, and with their little, he does a lot. Now, whenever I think about this story, I imagine sitting in these little circles with about 50 persons each. We see in the distance Jesus taking the disciples' lunch. We hear him saying grace. And then we see one of the disciples approaching us. Maybe it's Simon Peter coming up to our group. He's got some bread and fish in his hands, which is some of the lunch that he packed. And he starts to feed us with it. Now, after the meal, after we've all eaten, if I were to ask you, who fed you today? How would you answer that question? Who fed you today? It's kind of a tough question to answer. Because what this shows is that if Jesus is not involved, if he doesn't intervene, there's going to be a lot of hungry people. Because of Jesus, 5,000 plus people get fed. It's a miracle, no doubt. But our experience of it, our experience of this sort of extraordinary feat feels so ordinary. Our experience of it is as a guy named Simon Peter coming up to us and giving us some bread and fish. Who fed us today? Simon Peter did. What did he feed us? His lunch. And yet Jesus fed us too. Give us this day our daily bread, we pray. At least have been taught to pray. And every single day, our Heavenly Father answers this prayer. Every single day, our Heavenly Father feeds far more than 5,000. He feeds billions upon billions. But our experience of this extraordinary care feels so ordinary. I want you to consider all of the steps and the human hands that are involved in getting daily bread onto your kitchen table. Bread begins with a wheat seed that a bunch of farmers plant. Farmers care for these seeds as they grow, checking for disease and monitoring plant health until harvest. At harvest time, farmers gather up the wheat and they collect its seeds. The seeds then get loaded into a semi. A truck driver delivers the seeds to a grain elevator. More human hands get involved. The seeds get turned into grain, which in turn get milled into flour. Then the flour miller, more hands, package the flour and they sell it to stores. More hands. Bakers and chefs purchase the flour to make bread. The bread is baked in an oven and then it's sold. More hands. Then you or mom and dad go to the store to buy it. And after all of these steps, after passing through all of these hands, bread finally lands in your toaster oven or in your lunchbox or on your dinner plate. This is how God gives daily bread. God cares for us so very often. He meets our needs. He feeds us. But he does so ordinarily. He mediates his love through his people. I don't mean for this to sound obtuse, but who did you hear good news from today? How did God feed your faith today? He does it through people. He preaches it through ordinary guys like me and through your friends in Bible study. Like that's how good news is 
rubbed into your heart. It's through people. And how did he feed you, like physically feed you? He did it through people too. Don't lose sight of the miracle. Don't lose sight of his supernatural fatherly care. He cares for you body and soul, and that comes to you so often through his image bearers, through his people. I want to land this plane. Okay. What is the point of this story? Why do four gospel writers make sure to include it in their version, even though it's already been told by the other three, even though that this might sound redundant? Why? It's because it's a truth that you need to hear four times and counting. God loves you. He cares for you, body and soul. I'll say it again. God loves you, and he cares for you, body and soul. That is why he has given us Jesus. It is why the good, good father gave us a good, good son, so that you might know this, not just intellectually, but experientially. He loves you. He cares for you. I told you the story about my Aunt Debbie filling her bowl with bugles, right? trying to satisfy her hunger with something that would never, ever do the trick. And I wonder, maybe she wouldn't have made that mistake if she were just a little bit more awake. Or maybe she wouldn't have made that mistake if she had encountered bugles before. Maybe. Well, I don't want you all to make the same mistakes. I want to wake you up tonight. I want to introduce you to Jesus. So you can quit trying to fill your bowl or your cup or that hole in your heart with bugles and iPhones and drugs and success, things that won't ultimately satisfy, but that you will instead come, you who thirst, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy me, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Come to Jesus. Receive his gospel and receive his daily bread with thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that um, we do have these aches in our heart, in our gut, that never seem to go away. And we're trying to fill them with all sorts of things, and it's not working. I'm grateful that there is food that does satisfy, that there are that our longings actually have something that can satisfy them. As surely as uh, a duck who wants to swim, well, there's water. People who are hungry, well, there's food. Well, we have this longing that really only you can satisfy, um, that even heaven can only satisfy. So I pray, Lord, that we would find our 
our rest in you and find our satisfaction in you. Um, Help us to see Jesus rightly. And not just to see him, but to receive him. Lord, would you feed us with your gospel? Would it change us? Would it it nourish us? Um, We also just want to acknowledge the ways that you don't just meet our spiritual needs, but that you have been faithful in meeting our physical needs too. There are our roofs over our head and clothes on our backs and food in our fridge and on our plate. So often we don't think to give you thanks for these things. We almost just take it for granted rather than saying it for what it really is, which are good gifts from you and signs, evidences, proofs of your care for us. You don't leave us stranded. You're watching over us every single day. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that rightly. And rather than just sort of blowing it off, we would say thanks. And I pray, Lord, um, those things would make you seem closer to us, not further away. That you are actually as close to us as the image bearer right beside us. So we give you these petitions and we attach them to our praise and we give it all in Jesus' name. Amen.